This is season one of Betting On It, an eight episode series where we follow one betting industry startup on its journey to raise seed capital. Betting On It is brought to you by GeoComply, who provides fraud prevention and cybersecurity solutions that detect location fraud and help verify a user's true digital identity. Trusted by leading brands and regulators for the past 10 years, their geolocation solutions are installed on over 400 million devices and analyze over a billion transactions every month. To learn more, visit www.geocomply.com. All right, we are back with episode six of Betting On It. And today we have with us a previous podcast guest. Once again, I swear when we started this series, I wasn't intending for all of the guests to be previous podcast guests, but just so happened that we've had so many amazing guests. That's very topical with some of the things we've been exploring here in the series that uh, it's just sort of worked out that way. And I guess in keeping with that trend, we welcome back today, Kenneth Giles from Symbol, who joined the podcast almost a year ago, I think, Ken. I think when we had spoke, you were just building up to the start of last NFL season, which obviously feels like a lifetime ago. So, you know, first and foremost, thanks for being up for joining us today here. We'll set the backdrop and set the scene in just a minute, but maybe just to kick off, could you give us a quick update on how things are going with you and Symbol and just kind of what the last year's looked like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on again, Jesse. Um, and I appreciate you having Symbol on a year ago when we were, you know, getting ready to launch our uh, our product into football season in 2022. Always enjoy chatting with you. Uh, happy to give a quick update, and Drew Sahil, it's great to meet you. Super excited to be on today. Um, we're talking about like two of my favorite things ever, which is like sports betting and building financial models and fundraising. So I'm really excited for this conversation. But um, quick update on Symbol. Um, so as Jesse mentioned, uh, I was founder and CEO of a sports betting startup uh, called Symbol. Uh, we're actually still active. Uh, you can find us in the uh, the Apple uh, iOS store uh, and also online at Symbol.com. We were creating a stock market for sports that allows fans to invest in virtual shares of teams, similar to a stock market style that's becoming more and more popular with you know the rise of, of day traders and investing in the stock market, cryptocurrencies, and all of that good stuff. Um, quick update on that. Since we uh, last spoke, Jesse, we actually launched our mobile app and we are at over now 20,000 downloads uh, in the App Store, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, so we've been active now there for like seven months, continue to scale that. Um, since we last spoke, actually, though, I have stepped away from the founder CEO role um, and now in more of an advisory role. So I still work on Symbol uh, in my free time uh, after after my day job. My co-founder, Dallas Klein, is still running that uh, as now CEO, and he actually built the mobile app as well. Currently, to give you a quick update on my uh, on my life, um, I'm now working for a Series A startup called Forecaster, which is a financial modeling software company uh, that helps other startups from you know pre-seed all the way up to Series A uh, build their financial models, forecast their revenue growth, and run their businesses more effectively, and help them fundraise by building them a great financial model. Um, so that is now my day job, with Symbol uh, being a nice uh, a nice thing to do in the evenings. Right on. Well, look, thanks for the update, Ken. Obviously, a lot I, I probably want to ask about there. I will resist temptation because we're not focused on that here today. But um, really appreciate you joining again. And and part of the reason, you know, beyond the fact that, yeah, you have a background in this space. Um, I remember when we had talked previously on the podcast with Symbol, you had gone through the Techstars Accelerator. So I know you've personally gone through kind of the process to get, quote unquote, investor ready. And you have some firsthand experience there. But maybe as interestingly, or probably more interestingly now with your current role at Forecaster, you're literally doing financial modeling for a day job and helping, as you say, early stage companies really take what is a fairly like nebulous abstract concept at the very beginning when there's not a lot of quantifiable data to really project forwards. And I really want to spend time today, I guess, focusing on that. So, you know, this episode's coming on the heels of an episode we did on crowdfunding. So we're starting to explore kind of this, you know, uh, financing strategy sort of topic. And to, I think, help us and, and Drew and Sahil here really 
kind of take the next step in their investor readiness, you know, one of the areas that they need a little bit of, I guess, uh, help on here and, and where you're going to play a role today is getting down to the, the forecasting side of it. And, you know, obviously we have to make assumptions and how do we, you know, how do we make those assumptions? How do we defend those assumptions and, and so on and so forth. So I'm really excited for this conversation, um, much like some previous episodes in this series. I'm mostly going to shut up for the rest of it. So uh, I'll put myself on mute here. I have a nice warm cup of coffee I'm looking forward to enjoying. And Drew and Sahil, I'm going to turn things over to you guys now. All right. Thanks. Let's dive right into it. So first question for fundraising strategy, in your experience, what are the relative pros and cons of these following two different strategies? First one, raise a small amount in order to hit certain milestones that we know we can hit and then do another larger round of fundraising at a higher valuation. Or two, raise as much as possible right away and just see how long that lasts. Yeah, no, that's a great question. We get that a lot. Um, so as you know, Jesse mentioned in the intro, um, working with a lot of early stage companies in like the pre-seed and seed round, you know, I see a lot of this question asked of like knowing how much to fundraise, when to fundraise um, and how that all works. One thing I always say is the market does a very good job of telling you how much you should fundraise, right? Like, you know, it, when push comes to shove, the people that are giving you the money are going to dictate, uh, you know, some of that. With that being said, to just touch on a few of the strategies that you mentioned, the first thing that I always say is, uh, and a lot of what I'm going to mention is going to go back to financial modeling because that's what I do. But that is one of the, actually the key benefits of building a financial model is having the financial model tell you how much you need to raise to reach your goals. Once you have a financial model built, even in an early stage, it's going to be wrong, right? The assumptions are going to be wrong. But once you have the framework built, you can use those assumptions to back into how much you need to raise to reach your goals, right? If your goal is to reach you know, 100,000 users in the next 18 months, once you build that model, you'd be like, oh, we need this amount of money to reach those goals in the next 12 to 18 months. So that's step one. The next thing that I would say is generally speaking in the venture capital industry is each round lasts you about 12 to 18 months of capital. That's generally what investors are looking for is when they invest in you, they're saying, hey, you're going to use this all in 12 to 18 months. You're going to reach the next step. And then you're going to go out and fundraise, run fundraise again, or you're going to get to profitability. So again, going back to it, using your financial model will tell you how much money you need to have a runway of 12 to 18 months to be able to reach that next goal. Uh, and then the last thing I will say on that is in this current environment, fundraising is a lot harder than it was 24 months or 18 months ago, right? Capital's dried up. People are less you know, focused on growth, 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 growth. And there's more of an emphasis on how fast can we get to profitability, right? Is there a path to profitability? Is this a sustainable company or are they going to have to raise eight rounds of funding just to become a profitable company. So again, going back to the financial model of having that basis to be able to show an investor saying, hey, this is our plan. We need $1 million to get 18 months. We need then $2 million to get a profitability. And that's our plan. That's a really powerful story to tell the investor. So long story short, it depends on uh, the, the company, what their financial model says. But ultimately, you want to just have a clear path to profitability you know, within a two to three year time frame once you start like your seed investment. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, to your point, we spent quite a lot of time trying to make sure that we understand both like the cost that we have right now and sort of figuring out what our burn rate is going to be as we add features and, and dependencies. But one of the things that has been kind of a challenge for us is the whole, you know, as costs scale up, it's hard to know at what point you're going to hit the, uh, the you're going to cross the chasm as it were, right? and uh, you get the users into profitability. So let's assume for a minute that we're going with the, the former plan where we try to raise X amount with a run with a profitability of let's just say 18 months. If that doesn't happen for whatever reason, 
is there like a consequence to having taken this approach versus just going for the the like the whole thing all at once you know what i mean yeah for sure right you know if you raise if you raise an amount and you know that you're going to have to raise again in order to get to profitability or you don't reach your goals and get to profitability there will be you know a consequence of you have to go out and fundraise again and when you're fundraising there's no guarantee you're going to get the next investment so one thing i always say is when you go out to fundraise say you're shooting for a million dollars and the market's saying, hey, here's $1.5 million, or you can oversubscribe to $2 million. This is not a blanket statement, so not everyone should do this. But a lot of times we we'll say, hey, take that money while you can get it, right? You can then use it to negotiate on better terms, right? If you have that much interest, you can get better terms, you can get longer runway. So when there is money, as long as it's a fair deal, I would say take the money and, and, and last as long as you can. Now, one thing that you will have to deal with, though, is if you are raising around and you say, hey, we're going to reach these goals in 18 months and you don't reach those goals. I don't want to say there's a consequence, but you have to be able to craft the story when you go back out of saying, hey, this is why we're raising again. This is why we didn't achieve what we said. This is how we're going to change it to achieve our next set of goals. Um, so there is a certain aspect of that. If you do raise your seed round and you don't reach the goals to get to that series A or you raise a pre-seed and don't reach those goals, to get to a seed. Um, you know, you will have to figure out how to navigate that fundraising environment to get that next round in the door. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. That's really specifically what I was asking is beyond the obvious of like, hey, you got to go raise again. Is there a difference in the approach if you specifically say this is our path to profitability versus, hey, we're just going to go raise as much as we can because we know that we're going to need, you know, X amount instead of just going for the small pot. But that, that makes a ton of sense. Thank you. So I think next question is, you know, in terms of valuations, it's pretty difficult to quantify early stage valuations, right? As you well know. So with the limited data that we have, how should we be thinking about valuation, right? Like what are the best ways to sort of justify and defend our target valuation to prospective investors? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Probably the next most common that we get at Forecaster. And this is my personal belief. This is, uh, I can also safely say, not speaking on behalf of people, but Techstars taught me this, so I can safely say that it's Techstars' point of view uh, for the most part, and then also Forecaster's point of view, which is we are a firm believer of not going into an investor meeting and saying, hey, this is our valuation and this is how much money we're raising, right? You need to know how much money you're raising. That's, that's part of it. But do not go in there and saying, hey, we're raising $1 million at a $10 million cap unless you've already had an investor tell you that. If you have a lead investor and they set the valuation, then it's okay to go do that. But if you don't have a lead investor and you don't have terms, I would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend not going in there and setting a hard line of this is our valuation. It's the easiest turnoff for an investor to be like, ah, yeah, we're not interested in that. What you want them to do is you want them to fall in love with you guys. You want them to fall in love with your idea. They want You want them to fall in love with the vision. And then the valuation will take care of itself as the market sort of fills itself out in your round, right? Once you get four, five, six, 10 VCs interested, then you can start floating around ideas and they'll kind of tell you how much they want to value you at. And that way you're not just turning people off, you know, before you get to that point. So not saying, you know, if someone asks you, you know, you have to have a general idea in mind. Don't go in there and be like, oh, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, have, like you can say, say like, hey, we're shooting for a general, you know, valuation of this. The best way to find that is similar companies that have raised the similar rounds before you, right? So look at the last two years. There's a lot of good resources like Crunchbase, um, and other resources that you can find uh, fundraising data 
to be like, hey, you know, this is what they were valued at. We're probably shooting for somewhere similar because we're a similar style company. But I would firmly recommend not going in and being like, hey, we want a $10 million valuation right now because that's just not gonna not gonna go over well. So um, generally speaking, look at Crunchbase, look at similar companies and also get a feel for, you know, talk to your advisors, talk to previous investors, see what they see in the market because they have a better idea of what um, valuations are for companies at, at the current stage. With that being said, just one more general thing on valuations is VCs in startups, the earlier you get, right, even series A, but, but seed, pre-seed, you know, angel investment, they're not investing in startups based on cash flow or profit margin or anything like that, right? Because there, there's just no data to value that. You're not doing a 10x multiple of revenue because what's 10x of zero, right? So the whole the whole idea of valuations is what can this company be in five years? And do I see them getting to $100 million of revenue in five to seven years? That's what they're betting on. So in terms of valuation, it's not, you know, you're not looking for specific metrics. It's more of a, uh, I call it more of an art than a science of where the market's valuing, how much money is flowing around, all of that good stuff. Makes sense. So uh, sort of an alternative, I guess, to having a valuation right now is uh, using a safe contract, as we understand it, that Y Combinator's popularized. Uh, what are the main things to know about safe agreements and what are the pros and cons we should consider? And just a, one more quick blurb. My current understanding of it is we would go out and we would raise the money today and we would postpone the valuation for, let's say, a year. And then uh, the actual equity and distribution would happen a year from now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a really good understanding of it. So safes are extremely popular, by far the most popular in the United States. Uh, in other parts of the world, um, in what Techstars did, so I have uh, some familiarity with convertible notes, which is very similar to the safe, except with a convertible note, it's a little bit closer to debt because there's an interest rate on it. Uh, but safes and convertible notes are really popular for early stage companies. Uh, if you are considering a safe, I recommend going to the Y Combinator website. You said Y Combinator made it popular. Go through that and read it yourself because they did design it to be extremely readable for non-attorneys. Um, so the easiest way to like fully understand it is actually to go to Y Combinator and read yourself. But you're exactly right. The reason safes got popular is because they are not putting a valuation on the specific company. Because as we mentioned before, it's really hard to put a valuation on early stage startups. So what safes do, it's a really cheap way to uh, close an investment round without needing tons of attorneys to pour through documents and documents that go along with the price round. So Almost every investor on an early stage startup, uh, you know, from pre-seed to seed will require you to do uh, a save. And if you're a founder and someone really wants to price your round, I would even almost, almost caution going towards a safe too, just because it's so much easier and cheaper and faster to get the money in the door. So that's one side of it. The other thing you're exactly right on how it actually works is uh, there's no valuation, but what happens on the safe is there's a couple different types um, that, that get modified that go around. The most popular is a safe uh, with a cap. So what that means is a valuation cap of say $5 million. That means when you do raise a price round in the future, whoever gave you the safe or whoever invested you in the safe, that their valuation cap is $5 million. So if you go raise at a $10 million valuation, they're gonna get equity as if it was $5 million based on how much they gave you. So that's the easiest way to understand it. So that gives the upside to early investors of, when, you know, they're hoping that your valuation rises, and that when you know they uh, when you get the new price round, that the safe cap will come in cheaper than that. So that's one option. Another really popular is called discount rate. So instead of having a cap, a discount rate is essentially the shares that the early investors get or the safe investors get is a discount to what's actually happening. So really popular is like 
a 15 or 20% discount. Meaning if you go raise around at a $10 million valuation, they get a 20% discount to be, to invest at an $8 million valuation. So that's the other side of it. Some, you know, some states have a, a cap and a discount, right? So each one's a little bit different there. The only downside to safe notes, uh, and I, and I, Caveat this saying, I strongly recommend it for early stage startups. Y Combinator does it. Techstars does it. Like it is the most popular by far. The only downside is stacking safes on top of each other can get quite dilutive and expensive for the founder, right? So if you raise on a safe with a $5 million cap, and then you raise on a safe with a $10 million cap, and then you raise on a safe with a $20 million cap, if you then go raise for $50 million, you have three rounds of funding that are going to get huge discounts to that price round. There, there's some great YouTube videos on it. If you just search like ins and outs of, you know, go search like a Y Combinator safe, uh, Combinator safe video, they'll talk through this. That's the only potential downside is stacking safes on top of each other can get really dilutive. Uh, but again, strongly recommend it uh, for early stage startups. Okay, cool. So, let's let's say uh, for the scope of this conversation that we're looking to do one round of funding total and then hit profitability. So just uh, that's the goal. We'll see whether it happens or not. Yeah, I think um, that uh, that makes that makes a ton of sense. The, the other way, safes exit. So safes convert, as you mentioned, on like the next priced round. So if you actually never raise again, theoretically, it's like, okay, when does the safe convert? So safes convert at like the next price round or generally an exiting event. So if you sell to another company, if you take it public um, or you start issuing dividends, then that's like considered a price round when the safe will convert. So um, it's still okay to do a safe, even if you don't plan on raising again. There's just a few ins and outs of how it converts down the road. I guess I, one other sort of similar question. How does that work with something like a friends and family round? Yeah, great question. We actually raised a friends and family round for Symbol um, before we got into uh, into TechStars, so we're familiar with it. Um, so with friend, friends and family, I would also uh, recommend the unpriced safe round. Again, it's the easiest way to get money in the door. It's the least complicated. You have to hire the least amount of lawyers, although I still would recommend getting legal advice from an attorney. But it is still the easiest way. Uh, if you know, I think on the last episode, you did talk about crowdfunding. Um, crowdfunding is a great way to have friends and family participate in the upside of the business, right? They want to support you. They see the upside in it. They want to support your dreams, right? Or, or maybe they think they're going to get rich quick, right? That could be, that could be part of it, too. Um, crowdfunding is a great way to, to get friends and family in the door. Uh, a few other ones are like angel lists. So special, oh man, what are they called? Special vehicles. SPVs, and, I think. Yeah. Special SPVs. Thank you, yeah. Jesse. Yeah. SPVs. Um, so like angel lists, websites like that are really good ways to get friends and family to participate, um, in a really safe way. That's not just some, you know, transfer to a bank account without any documentation. Makes, yeah, sense. makes sense. Let's get back to revenue forecasting itself. We've kind of, we've gone off down a different rabbit hole. What's your high-level framework on how to approach revenue forecasting? So obviously we're going for exponential growth, but uh, like you mentioned earlier, we don't have the data. There's no certainty. So how do we convey that potential to investors in a way that resonates with them? Awesome, 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 awesome question. Uh, I love this when I'm working with with founders at Forecaster um, to build out their financial model. I actually think it's one of the hardest things to switch founders' mindsets on and how to think about it, right? So uh, I strongly recommend and what we do at Forecaster is uh, it's called bottom-up modeling or customer-first modeling. So essentially this whole idea of if you want to be a venture-backed startup, you're going to have to prove to venture capitalists that you're going to reach $100 million of revenue within a five to seven or eight-year time frame, right? That's what they're looking for. Is they're looking for unicorns. They're looking for home run status. 
right? So we're projecting out, you know, five to seven years to get to $100 million of revenue. What a lot of founders think, and I made the same mistake, you know, being a first time founder is when I build out my financial model is I'm sitting there and be like, hey, we're going to grow 5% month over month. If we grow 5% month over month, that gets us to $100 million. Like, boom, we're golden. We're a billion dollar company, all of that stuff. The first question I got when I presented that is, oh, 5% month over month. That's super cool. Where does that come from? So I was doing what is called top-down modeling of, hey, we have a top-line growth of 5% month over month. That's awesome, right? The question, the first question you're going to get is, where does that growth come from? And this is where bottom-up modeling comes into play, which is essentially is it asks a question, how are you acquiring customers and what are your assumptions that go into acquiring customers? So the easiest, easiest example is cost per click advertising, right? You're advertising on Instagram or you're advertising on Facebook, extremely popularized. What goes into getting a customer in the door from Facebook? Well, essentially, there's three main inputs. It's your budget. How much are you spending? It's your cost per click. How much does it cost to get one person to your website? And what's your conversion rate? How many of those customers that come to your website become paying customers? So understanding those three assumptions, we can still grow at 5% month over month. But instead of just doing a top line 5% growth, you're growing either you're, you're increasing your budget, which makes sense, right? You need 5% more people, you need 5% more budget, or you're optimizing your conversion rates and you're optimizing your cost per click. So the reason I say that is that's what we call customer first modeling. Right. So instead of just saying this 5% top line growth, we're actually modeling out the key drivers of acquiring customers. Now, when you're pitching to an investor and you say, hey, we're growing 5% month over month, and they ask you, where does that 5% come from? You have an easy answer. Hey, we're spending $10,000 a month on Facebook advertising. We're getting a $1 cost per click, meaning we're getting 10,000 people in the door. We have a 10% conversion rate, meaning we're getting 1,000 people per month from this. That's a lot more impressive than saying, uh, I don't know, we're going to grow 5% month over month. So Back to the original question of revenue uh, growth. We do what's, again, called customer-first modeling. Is we get customers in the door and we put them in our revenue formula. So how we're, you know, how we're monetizing our customers, right? It could be a subscription. It could be transaction-based. It could be, um, you know, for you guys, it sounds like either a subscription uh, or transaction-based. Um, and you guys can give me more details on that. But essentially, right. once we acquire our subscription, perfect. So once we acquire our uh, customers, we put them into our subscription while we're charging them per month, and that will scale our, uh, our revenue growth over time. And from there, once you scale your revenue, then you can start talking about, you know, what, what are the expenses that we need in order to, you know, to satisfy X amount of customers and Y amount of revenue. Awesome. I think one, one challenge for us, just thinking ahead to like how we're going to apply this advice um, is that we haven't really dipped our toes into that side of like trying to do marketing conversion yet. So I think that if we want to make this actionable, we're going to need to basically just like take a little time and money and go and experiment. That's really, really good feedback. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, I work with a lot of early stage companies that are pre-product and they're saying, hey, you know, we just have no idea on acquiring customers. That's okay. Right. Investors aren't, you know, if you're pre-product and you don't have any customers in the door, in investors aren't expecting your model to be right. Right. Even for late stage companies. Right. Think about publicly traded companies that are that have quarterly updates, how many times they miss projections. Right. The whole the, the idea isn't to be 100 percent right month to month. The idea is to communicate a framework of this is how we're going to do it. These are our current assumptions. Now, each month, as we learn more, as we try different things, as we experiment, we're going to update our assumptions so that hopefully they're more accurate over time. But what investors really want to see is that founders understand the key drivers of their business, even if they don't have precise data. 
right? If you understand the formula that I just told you of budget, cost per click and conversion rate, an investor is going to be like, oh my gosh, they know exactly what they're going to do. It doesn't really matter if the numbers are right right now, right? We can use industry averages, right? You can go Google what's the average cost per click on Facebook for sports betting startups and get an answer. That can be your placeholder. And then you tell them like, hey, as we learn more, right? This is our current plan. As we learn more, we're going to update it. Um, but don't be afraid to don't be afraid to make a financial model because you haven't because you don't have the data. The whole idea is build the framework and fill in the data as you learn more about the business. Uh, let's go uh, with a follow up to that. Here's kind of how we're thinking about our like bottom up customer first, first approach. Given that online advertising for a gambling related business is very difficult. What we're looking to do is one, make sure our customers love our product once they get in the door and then two, incentivize them via affiliate referrals. And then essentially our customers will go and evangelize it. And then that's sort of like an organic growth thing. So how would you forecast that sort of model? Yeah. yeah. No. Let's say we have uh, an appropriately high um, CPA to make it worth someone's while. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You're exactly right. For sports betting startups specifically, customer acquisition is probably going to be the biggest question that you're going to get from investors. The biggest question I got when we were raising for Symbol, uh, when we were raising our pre-seed round is, is, hey, you know, DraftKings is paying $2,500 to acquire a customer. How are you going to compete with that? Or, uh, you know, these other companies that raise a lot of money are paying hundreds of dollars for a customer acquisition cost. How are you as a startup going to compete with that? And um, one of the key things is customer referral, organic growth of, of having, this is a cliche term, but having some virality. Uh, and all virality really means uh, is for every customer that you bring in, will they bring in more than one person, right? Because as soon as you have that is, oh, we need to acquire one person. Now we have two more, right? That, now they brought in two people themselves, right? That's the virality. Exactly. So there's actually a tracking and oh, maybe Jesse you might have to bail me out again on this one. There's a marketing term for it. It's like your um, A factor man. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, you come in the clutch again. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is <laughs> uh, how many referrals do you get per person that you bring in? Um, so if you can gather that data, that is really powerful, right? If you're anything above a one, that is virality of you know every person you bring in it might be 1.2. It might be 1.5. Um, but that is virality. That, that's a good example. So you can model that out, which is look at how many current users you have. How many of them do you expect to refer someone that month? And that's still your customer first approach to project growth um, using that using that that uh, referral factor. So yeah, that that's and again, I think that's one of the biggest issues for sports betting startups to overcome is can you create a product that is so good and so entertaining and so fun that you are going to experience some of that viral growth that you don't have to go spend you know five hundred dollars to acquire a customer. One thing one thing I like about financial models is uh, when you build it you're like, hell yeah, this is awesome, right? I've got the plan. And then a month later, it's like, well, our assumptions are wrong. Like, where do we go now? <laughs> um, that's where, you know, you, you got to keep up to date on the, on the modeling and, and keep updating the, the assumptions. Yeah, there's a good quote along those lines. All maps are wrong. Some are useful. Yep. Nope, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I think we're probably going to have to take the approach that sort of uh, combines both of those, um, both like some amount of ad spend and customer conversion that way, and then some amount of virality. Um, just because, you know, relying on either one of those vectors seems irresponsible when you don't have that much money to throw away or you don't have a long and historical track record of virality yet. And so the hope is that when we sort of align the incentives, we'll get the latter and then we'll use some ad spend to get the former. And hopefully together that'll pick us up. 
Yeah. And that, and the other thing too, about early stage startups is one of the big benefits you have is the ability to experiment, right? Like, Hey, let's throw some money at Facebook ads this month, grab some data. And then the next like, let's go do a partnership deal. And then next one, let's do some email marketing or content marketing on TikTok or something like that. Right. You can try a bunch of things when one works, pour gasoline on it. If it doesn't work, no harm loss, get rid of it and try the next one. One other follow-up there. Uh, one thing we're considering uh, instead of traditional paid advertising is micro-influencers, which is sort of uh, fits the affiliate model a little more cleanly. Do you have any thoughts there on like um, how would we project uh, once the infrastructure is built out, we'll go out and get, say, 10 micro-influencers and you yeah. know, what, where's the projection go from there? Yeah, no, for sure that you're, you're exactly right. The assumptions that go into like influencer marketing or affiliate marketing is how many partners you have. Multiply that by how many people you think they're going to refer you each month. Multiply that by a conversion rate. And that's that's your customer first approach right there. Um, one thing that I would say, you know, evaluating good micro-influencers is something that you need to do well uh, and you need to stay on top of, right? There's a lot of people that have Twitter followings and Instagram followings and TikTok followings, but they're, they don't have a strong relationship with their audience. So it might look really impressive of like, oh my gosh, they've got so many followers. But if there's not a strong relationship there, you got to evaluate the lifetime value of the customers that they're bringing you versus you know what you're paying out. So having good attribution of this customer came from this place, they're a good customer. This customer came from this place, they're not our target customer. And just being able to work through that really quickly and evaluate who's a good micro-influencer and keeping the good ones and rewarding them and moving on from the ones that aren't as, uh, don't give you a good return on investment is, is really important, especially as funds are limited and you go into your first fundraise. Okay, so on a slightly different track, um, I'm curious, like just based on what you understand about our product and our business model, what are the most valuable metrics that you think we should be adding beyond the financial model? Because obviously we, we have to add that in. So we talked about, you know, the financial modeling from the, uh, the ad side, from the micro-influencer side, and then also from the virality side. What else do you think we should really be focusing on in terms of most valuable metrics? And conversely, what are the metrics that you think are maybe not so worth spending our time on? A couple things I'll say is uh, investors are very different, right? So you're talking to one investor and they're going to want to see something completely different than other investors, right? So like a lot of it is you need to have kind of all the data you can pick the best ones that you want to, that you think everyone cares about. And then, you know, as you talk to different investors, they're going to want to know different things. One thing that I, I will always generally say on like pre-seed companies or pre-product companies, or another way to say it is companies that aren't raising on their revenue or their traction is you, you don't have a ton of metrics, metrics, as you mentioned. And what investors are really looking for are your vision, right? Do they believe in your vision? Uh, do they believe in the market size? Can that vision go capture a market that is going to be worth their investment to get a good return on investment? And are you the team to be able to execute that vision to capture that market? So for pre-product or pre-revenue companies, that is really the most important thing, you know, from the investor perspective in a generalized statement. Now, as you're moving upstream, say you're doing a seed round of funding, you have an MVP out, uh, a, a viable product, you're getting some early traction. Now it's figuring out, you know, what are the key drivers of your business that will make it valuable, really valuable in five years, right? Is it the amount of time that's spent on the app, right? Is it a ratio of daily active users to monthly active users, right? How sticky is your product? What's your churn rate? So once you start having traction, I think those are some of the key metrics that you'll want to look for um, as you're going out to uh, to fundraise. And then the other thing, which I did not do uh, a good enough job on when when uh, when I was, you know, running, running Symbol full time, 
is a lot of customer discovery early in the process, right? Actually talk to your customers. If you have beta users, get on the phone with them, call them and be like, what, what don't you like? What do you like? What pain point am I solving, right? So really understanding the customer is super impressive to the investor. If you can go to a meeting and say, hey, we did a beta test with 50 people. I talked to all of them and here was their feedback. That is a really powerful message, even more so than the data that those 50 people gave you. It's because you actually talked to them and you got their feedback and, and what pain points you're solving and what entertainment you're providing. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question specifically on what metrics, but I think from an early stage, it's, it's a lot of vision, a lot of team. When you're beta testing, it's a lot of customer discovery and feedback. And then once you have enough traction where you can start showing, hey, this is our expected churn rate. This is our you know, average time spent on the app. These are the average number of wagers that were made on the app, right? Those are a few important metrics that, that, that investors will want to see. That makes a ton of sense. And yeah, it maybe it's not hard metrics exactly, but I think that you've given us what I was asking for, which is like directionally, what do we want to focus on right now? Um, and beyond that, you give us a roadmap. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Happy to, you know, like I said, I was in the same spot as you guys basically 12 months ago uh, today. So um, a lot of the things you're asking is what I found out by by doing it. So hopefully I can provide a little bit of value there. Yeah, absolutely. Drew Sawhill, anything else uh, while we have Ken here today? No, I think that's it. This is super helpful, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Jesse, do you mind if I do a, a quick shout out for, for forecasting where I learned a lot of my financial modeling skills? Well, yeah, absolutely. Ken, I was actually going to offer you a layup here because uh, one thing I think uh, I think some listeners would like to understand is you've talked a lot about modeling so far, but like, how do you actually start? So here's a layup, Ken. What, where can you point people towards to get some of this stuff and kind of get the ball rolling with financial modeling? Absolutely. So uh, a lot of the knowledge that I have from the financial modeling uh, perspective came from Forecaster. It's uh, F-O-R-E-C-A-S-T-R.co. We actually have templates on there for everything I talked about from bottom-up modeling, uh, from customer-first modeling. Um, so if you go onto the website, forecaster.co, uh, you'll have pre-built templates. It'll talk you through the assumptions that I just talked about of how to input your budget for cost per click, how to insert your cost per click, your conversion rates, all of that. Uh, and then if you graduate from like the spreadsheet version, which is what's online, our financial modeling software helps really empower uh, founders to forecast better, to provide more confidence to themselves, to investors, uh, and to really forecast their revenue ramp moving forward. Um, so if that's really interesting for you, or if you want a 30-minute demo of the Forecaster software and how it is an upgrade over like traditional Excel or spreadsheets, um, feel free to reach out to me, uh, Kenneth Giles uh, on LinkedIn uh, or uh, kj at forecaster.co. Feel free to shoot me an email. Happy to talk with you for 30 minutes about your specific financial model or any questions you had about anything I talked about today. So definitely reach out. Happy to answer any questions uh, from the, the vetting startups community. Ken, I'll drop uh, links in the show notes to everything you just plugged there. So again, for anybody listening that might want to check out Forecast or the templates or otherwise, yeah, easy easy to click through to those. But for now, uh, we'll pin it there for today, guys. This has been a super insightful deep dive. A lot of actionable stuff has come out of this that, again, I hope is really relevant uh, for some other people listening beyond uh, just Drew and Sawhill here that are navigating their own fundraising journey. So Ken, uh, thanks for bringing the heat, man. You you really, uh, I, I think, really highlighted a lot of important things here today. So thank you again for for showing up today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Jesse. I feel like I learned something new. You saved me a few times on a few terms, so I uh, appreciate that as well. Drew Sahil, uh, super great to meet you. Best of luck moving forward.